So welcome. This is our second ever for Be With Margit. I'm Margit. Um, so thanks to all who are joining. I'm super thrilled about this conversation because I have like an amazing group of people who are willing to talk about failure and comebacks. I have my own personal feelings about the topic, but I want to just welcome everybody. I'm going to start with Sunil, who um, has a must-read book out that I devoured last weekend. I was telling Sunil, I went for the longest walk. I started, honestly, admittedly, I started in bed, but then I started, went on the long <laughs> walk and just listened to the whole thing. It is called Backable, um, and it is the idea about like what makes people, companies, projects, ideas backable, meaning people can get behind them with money or energy or join as an employee or whatnot. Um, Co-author of the book is my favorite co-author and ghostwriter, um, Carly. I've worked on and off with Carly for many, many years, and she does a magical job. So, Carly, thank you for joining Clubhouse, and thank you for being on the show. Then we've thank got you. Eugene, who, despite his useful looks, is a professor at the Harvard Business School. Um, Eugene, I apologize. This came together a little sort of health or skelter. So I've not yet read your book, but I cannot wait. The book is, get this people, why they do it inside the mind of the white collar criminal. So we have lots of stories um, of people failing at something uh, because they thought they they could get away with it. I don't know, we'll find out. And then Ash, um, <laughs> Ash runs the San Francisco <laughs> office of the Brunswick Group. And let's just put it this way. When I become aware of someone uh, running into a pickle I often call Ash and a few of my other friends and Ash will gracefully go like, sure, I'll help this person out or this company. Uh, he also does things like financial events, like the Airbnb IPO and all of that. Congrats um, to that, by the way, Ash. So welcome, everybody. Um, I am, um, we're going to talk and we are going to have um, audience questions. We didn't do that last time, so we will do that. And Tina's going to help me manage some of the audience questions. But let me just kick it off and introduce people. Sunil, you are among, you, you did the book Backable. You also uh, founded this company Rise, a nutrition coaching app, uh, app that was bought by One Medical, which is another success. But you are also a failed politician. Sorry, <laughs> I, I brought this up since we are talking about failure and comebacks. Um, and at one point, you <laughs> Thanks, these people. Sure, sure, Sunil. My pleasure. But uh, Sunil, at one point, agreed to talk at a failure conference. And Ash, my first question is to you, but make the answer short because I want to turn it over to Sunil. Ash, <laughs> if Sunil had called you at the time, so like, should I go speak at this failure conference? Would you have said, sure, go for it, or maybe not? <laughs> Having gotten to know Sunil a little bit, yeah, I think you absolutely should have. I mean, I, I think it's a it's a good start. Is that a short enough answer? <laughs> I think you have to be up for it. And Sunil was. So Sunil, can you take us through that whole scenario, what that speaking thing was? I loved it. I was engrossed when I read it in the book. And I think it's a good starting point. Sure, sure. Um, well, you know, I, John Stewart has this great quote, which is that when I'm done with my career, I want to have failed at a variety of things. And it's always sort of resonated with me. I always identify with that. And, you know, I've had failed startups, canceled projects. As you mentioned, I ran for Congress and I lost. Um, one day I get a phone call and the phone call is from the organizer of a conference called FailCon. And she explains to me that, that I've been nominated twice to speak at this conference. And um, I decided to do it. And I didn't know this at the time, but while I was speaking, there was a, there was a reporter from the New York Times in the audience. 
and she's scribbling uh -oh. notes and there's a photographer there. And, and, and so, you know, fast forward to a, a full, a full length profile on failure and my face is at the top of this article. And so literally, I mean, and this is 2000, this is 2013 at the time you could have, you could have Googled failure and my face would have been one of the top search results. That sounds just awesome. Yeah, it does. It, it, it was, it was great. I mean, you know, and I, and I think that it sort of dovetails probably into some of what think probably what we're going to get into tonight, which is, you know, when something like this happens, when, when something that, that is embarrassing happens, um, you know, I, I, a mini crisis, a personal crisis, I think that, that it can be it can be an opportunity as well. You know, I was thinking about sort of just this topic and, and I'm reminded of this 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 uh, this parable from the Buddha who said that, you know, every time there's any type of embarrassment or, or pain, two arrows are shot one arrow is the arrow that that actually pierces your skin and causes you pain and the other arrow is the meaning that you ascribe to to that pain and so the question is like, what do we do with that pain what, and a friend of mine gave me a piece of advice which is like why don't you just use this as an opportunity as a conversation starter um you know you already have this sort of failure brand now what if you use that as almost an icebreaker to start conversations with people you admire and so I figured I'd, I'd give it a shot. I started I started emailing a, a wide variety of people from Oscar winning filmmakers to celebrity chefs to military leaders to iconic founders. And I basically said in the email like, hey, as you can see from this link below, I don't know what I'm doing. But would you be willing to, to grab coffee with me? Would you be willing to jump on the phone with me? Give me some advice. And that paved the way to these amazing conversations which ultimately uh, set the foundation for, for this book, Backable. But, but what was extraordinary about it is that these were really honest conversations because whenever, you, whenever it's rooted in failure and you're sort of talking about yours, other people tend to talk about theirs. And you know, what, I, what I realized is that um, I, 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 there, there's, there's a lot behind sort of the LinkedIn profile. And there's a lot about these people that we admire that, that isn't apparent, but, but these failures and embarrassments that they went through. And, you know, ultimately what I, what I learned uh, was, was, was a mantra that I continue to tell myself every day, which is that long-term success comes from short-term embarrassment. And that if you can't look back on an earlier version of yourself, and feel at least somewhat embarrassed, then you're not growing fast enough. A couple of questions, and people feel free to chime in. Um, so it sounds like you used the the failure of your whatever the failure was in your biography as a disarming tactic, and it worked spectacularly well. Did it work well across industries, or were there differences? Were the Silicon Valley people more amenable than the LA people, or not, or like? The, or the restaurant people, are there any differences that are culturally significant across industry? No, I felt like, I felt like, I feel like it was more of a human, it was more of a human connection than anything else. I did not notice, you know, any indus industry differences. I just think that, I think everybody's, I think failure is sort of a universal language. I think people kind of understand it. And again, like, you know, I think I think that these are the stories as I as I started to dig in and sort of hear the stories of like what what we're seeing of most people we admire is 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 the current chapter, but 
if you if you go back, you go back towards the introduction and chapter one and chapter two, you, you tend to see a very different story. And, and 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 I think that people across industries, no matter what, I think we're in some ways it, it, like excited to talk about that. Like how often do we end up having these sort of networking type of conversations where it's all about success and ambition? It can be refreshing sometimes to talk about failure. I think people people sort of enjoy that. I think especially when they've been able to sort of use these setbacks as stepping stones to get to something, you know, um, that they're they're proud of. I think looking back and being able to be open about that is something that's kind of refreshing. Sunil, I think your you know your narrative right now is great. You have the benefit of sort of hindsight and you know, mm-hmm. to talk right now. You know, you're in a great place now, right? But I'm curious for you and also Ash, right? Like when you're in the thick of it, right? When the failure is happening, let's say you're a founder and some stuff is going down. Like how how do you talk to yourself then? How do you handle it? Um, would love to hear kind of your thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, I think it sucks in the moment. I mean, there's there's no there's no sort of there's no doubt about that. I mean, it's the it's the two arrows, right? I mean, one pierces your skin. There's nothing you can do about that. I mean, it it, it hurts. But I, but I do think the second arrow, it's, it's the meaning and I think the opportunity that you can create out of that. And I think that's where Ash sort of comes in because I think, you know, Ash, if I'm, if I'm understanding sort of what you do, it's like, hey, I can't pull that first arrow out, but I think I can make some sense and an opportunity about, you know, what this second arrow is all about. Over to you, Ash. Yeah, no, I, th- I think a lot of it is about getting to the kind of root cause of what the issue is for the business. So really trying to understand that and, and then using communications to try and explain that. You know, I, I spend a lot of time with clients trying to get to that, that real root cause source and then articulate a way of explaining it. It's not about spin. This is about telling a story and articulating how you're going to get through it. One other point I was going to make on, on sort of the cultural side, as you probably can tell, I'm, I'm English. And in the UK and England, like failure is a different kind of topic to in America and certainly with tech firms. So it is actually very refreshing um, certainly in Silicon Valley and, and in the U.S. writ large, how um, you embrace failure in this country. It's one of the things I really appreciate about living here. I really, really, really like that you brought this up, uh, Ash, because I am a German immigrant. And failure is just really not allowed. I mean, if you have to declare bankruptcy in Germany, that's just it's like shame-wise, that's, that's peak shame level. So I cannot relate to Sunil's comfort of like, like failing and I, I admire it, but I'm like, to me, that's just like, I, it's, it's like, I'm, I'm hearing Chinese and I can't make sense of it. Um, <laughs> but, it's but like Margaret, amazing. But Margaret, so a peak, peak shame in the moment, totally get that. But then like, what, how do these stories end up playing out? Like, are, are, are you, I mean, you look back at most success stories, or at least many, many success stories, even here in the United States, and you see that there was there was failure in the past. Do you feel the same way about successful leaders in, in Germany? So um, it's a very good question. I think the the level of risk taking in Germany is greatly reduced because of um, of that very fact. Like so. Sunil, if you or anyone wanted to start another company, right, say Rise, I don't know what the outcome was, but you landed it, right? It was bought by One Medical. It was fine. Like you could here start another three or four tech companies if you wanted to, and you will probably find if the idea is good and you're well suited for the idea, blah, 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 you probably find backers. In Germany, that's just not the same. So, and and, and I think that is at the root of many, many different things in Germany. So it doesn't have a big Silicon Valley. We have um, 
Casu Plotner's company, whatever that's called, SAP for ancient old, right? But we don't have a vibrant tech sector like we have in the US. We have a great Mitteldstand. A lot of those are the famous Mitteldstand. Those are like modestly sized businesses. Oftentimes they're family businesses. They're very traditional. But the idea that you can just fail and then openly talk about it and people go like, hey, that's cool. No way, no how. And I did so sort of, I, I'm more American now than I am German. But like that is one thing I I just am having a hard time with. And but I'll I'll open it up to Eugene, Carly, Tina, and others to weigh in. Well, I'm just so interested. There's no such thing as a comeback story. That's not exciting at all. We love that here. That is true. I mean, Ash will attest to this. Like uh, when companies take me through, like, well, here's what happened. Here's when I'm drama, drama, drama. And I'm just like, well, as long as they're like a bow at the end, right, where it's happy. Like exactly. Americans are can totally get behind that. We we like we like redemption and we like comebacks. And I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I, I see in the US we have this enduring optimism. So I mean I've spent a lot of time with unfortunately many more prominent executives that found themselves, you know, not just failing, but then ending up in in prison. And, and what I've been, you know, fascinated to see is, you know, as they're finishing up that that sentence, they, they're planning to go and create something new and re-enter the world. Um and they think they're going to be able to do it. Uh, I'll say, sadly, uh, it it doesn't generally work out that well. Uh, they find that they leave. They they haven't paid their due. I mean, they paid their due to the justice system, um, but society doesn't let them have another chance. And and then a year later, after they get out, uh, their family falls apart because they're frustrated. And uh, so I think it, it, there's something really interesting we said about what kind of failure this is. Is it a, a strategic failure, a, a fit failure, a business failure, or is it some greater, you know, moral failure uh, where we don't actually let people have a second chance. I think that's a really good point, Eugene. And like that is rapidly changing, right? So say you do something that is viewed as um, maybe not criminal, but say a, a Me Too failure. Are there comebacks from that? I mean, Carly brought up the comeback story, which I think works, but like there are increasingly there's a longer list of topics where that's just no longer allowed. And that's an interesting phenomenon that I think we are living through as we speak. See, just saying that was too hot to touch. No, I think, I actually think you're right. I think some of these, um, you know, moral mistakes and unethical, you know, more than missteps, but really wrongdoings are different than some of the crises crises that I thought, you know, we were sort of discussing too, sort of like some of these public relations crisis around not raising your prices and not telling your customers at the right time, you know, and, and being vulnerable and coming back from that, like that, that great Zendesk story that that happened with. But I think when we're talking about Me Too, it is something different and people aren't interested in your comeback story. They want you to be punished. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, Eugene. I mean, you were, you were talking about sort of these different different types. I mean, when it comes to the moral side of things, I mean, where where are those thresholds right now? Are, are, are there, are, you know, what what can people come back from versus not? Is there a way to think about that? I mean, obviously, we I think we all have the impression that what we see in the front page of the headlines, uh, especially around these moral failings, are it's really the tip of the iceberg. And, and I think one way of thinking about it is the reason why you know individuals, for example, with Me Too and, and uh, these other kinds of uh, you know uh, failings, 
is that the reason we punish those individuals so hard is because we know that there's really hundreds of other people or thousands, many more that are not being punished. And so those that do get called out uh, essentially are, are taking everything. Um, but but it's, it's fascinating to see that there are certain areas that people can come back from and, and not others. And I think, you know, Me Too is an area we're going through right now. And I mean, or I think you're pointing out it, it's it is a, a such a, a emotional and for very good reasons topic. But I mean, there isn't a sense of people, I think, even now uh, have a chance to respond um, to that. And that's, I think, something that we'll be struggling with as time goes on to figure out actually how to think about that uh, as a society. Yeah, and I think it's a rather important question. Like, um, you know, I don't want to get canceled on the show myself, but like, so say um, Al Franken, right? Just to get anchors on a specific, like, is there no comeback for an example like that versus someone who, you know, was accused of something truly criminal? And I think that question is unanswered as of today. And And the problem with that is, not necessarily that we don't have an answer, but that we can't discuss it. Is that fair? Uh, no one sees themselves. And I think this is where I think of like Ash and what he brings to the table. Uh, it is uh, to explain the story uh, and and actually be able to describe how you can uh, um, emerge. Uh, you, you don't get that description in a lot of these cases. And I'll say it. it'll be curious how how we resolve that, and I, I agree. It's a it's a it's a hot topic and one that I don't think we are able to discuss right now. Margaret, I was just going to say, I think on the on the corporate side, it's obviously different. So you're you know you're you're telling us you're retelling a story if something happens or the problem happens. There's been a couple of interesting ones I've been thinking about recently. I, I don't work with sports stars or individuals, but um, Tiger Woods. There was a HBO documentary, and obviously he won the Masters in, in 2019. And then obviously Lance Armstrong. I mean, like, does does he have a comeback? He's obviously got a charitable cause. He clearly cheated. So there's some interesting kind of dynamics with those sort of stars. Obviously, Tiger Woods came back and actually won a, a big tournament. But I think those are kind of interesting. I'm not, I'm not sure I know what the point I'm making is, but it's really about, like, those big stars. And is there a comeback for those two? Maybe it's worth debating those two as an example. Yeah, maybe the difference is that Tiger Woods could could win another game and... Maybe Lance Armstrong can't because, well, one is age and two is like, well, <laughs> the doping thing. He's down, and yeah. I, I don't know if that's the difference, but um, I think I've heard him on maybe two podcasts, Lance Armstrong, that is, um, ever since. And that is it. He's largely been, I think, uh, I, I, I don't know, either unwilling or unable to come back. Hey, Ash, I got a question for you, because I know, I mean, you work with companies, but but ultimately, in these in these crises, you're working with people, um, and and so I would imagine that a lot of that has to do with coaching people how to deal with these you know emotional these highly emotionally charged moments. Like I was talking to an agent today at at uh, Creative Artists Agency about what happens when his clients fail. Like they go for an audition that they thought they had in the bag, and and they don't get the part. Um, and it's crushing. What does he what does he do? And, and one of the things he said is he has this just he has this he has this one thing that he he'll always tell them, which is to mark their calendar six months from now, to actually put it on the calendar six months from now that uh, you will be over this. And he's like, and I promise you, when you get to that date, 
you you will you will you will emotionally be over this defeat, and it's just one of those things that that it, it, it's just a sm- small technique that he says tends to work and makes people feel at least a little bit better. I, I'm curious for you, like again, you're not you're not just strategically advising companies, but you're working with people in these really emotionally charged situations. Any things you can share with us about what that's like? Yeah, so look, I, I think depending on the severity of the issue, I mean. There are some tough conversations uh, you'll, you know, I have to have and we have to have around whether that executive will um, even be able to keep their job um, if it's not that clear cut. So those are tough conversations and, and you know, you act in a very personal capacity in that sense. I, I think in terms of sort of tackling it more broadly, Sunil, I think it's, it's really about helping them understand that if they, can, if they can really understand what the issue is and they can take action and lead, that is really important. I think building out some principles for leadership during crisis as well is really important. There's some, there's some particularly good CEOs at it. I think Brian Chesky is very good at this. He's spoken publicly about it on, on different podcasts. He, you know, he develops a kind of um, principles list every time something happens um, within the organization. But I think just really focusing on like what the challenge ahead is, simplifying it, and really making sure that you, um, you understand how to tackle it and deal with it. Um, and from my perspective, staying close to them. You know, it, it is a 24-7 thing and just being really there for them is so important. It's like a coaching that, By the way, I think that's one of your superpowers is like the, to sit there with the person. But my, my question for you is, you know, since you and I are often in the same situation, it's like how, because you, you know, in the audition, which I think is a very useful hack and we should talk more about hacks and 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 other things that help people through this. But like, when you're dealing with a corporate client who has a business issue, you don't have the luxury of like, oh, set the clock for like, you know, you need to speed them through the emotional journey. Yeah. Like, how do you do that? And what do you do when a CEO is just sort of head in sand? This is not happening because it can't be happening because uh, I, you know, on and on and on. We've all seen that play out. Like, what do you do? So I, I think one-on-one is really important that you often get put in a, conference call or in a room lots of people saying lots of different things i think really trying to take those into a sidebar conversation is really important i think when lots of people are staring at you and looking at looking for answers especially as a ceo i think it's very difficult and very challenging um i keep going back to the sort of go to the truth and understanding it really empowering your team to find out what the issue is and how you're going to solve for it is so important and then any communication that you do you've got to get into a rhythm of being able to update fairly regularly and working through that process of how you're going to update. You can't just make a statement, run away, and put your head in the sand. You've got to make sure that you've, you really understand what that timeline looks like. So I think it's, you know, it's staying close. It's taking away from big groups. And um, it's getting into that rhythm of updating and, and really finding out how you communicate and what the timeline is. I think that's a really good point because Sunil and, um, and Brian Chesky, there are a few gifted people who can sort of kind of do the failing in public and like leverage it for them, which is so amazing. But when you're talking about like the group meetings that for some CEOs, particularly the super introvert ones and who've never been through it, that is like failing in public. So getting it out of that realm is probably super, super important. So that's a really great tip. I think it's so important, Margaret, because you you can, it can be very humiliating and people want to blame and people lash out. And I think in those circumstances, you really want to take it away, be considered, have those private conversations, and then come back and decide as a group what you're going to do. But you need to take leadership as a CEO and, and um, take control. 
Yeah, that makes eminent sense. Hey, Eugene, you're probably in this situation. Like, I really want to know, like, why they do it. And you're in the situation where you, you're dealing with people who royally scrubbed up, and those are criminal cases. And like, why do they do it? And like, how how, how would you view this whole psychology? I, I mean, it's interesting what we're describing here. It's around self awareness, and I think what you're we're just describing right now is trying to make people more self-aware about how they rebuild and respond. Um, I'll say kind of the, the th main thesis of my book is it's not so much of a failure of reasoning. I mean, most of the people I'm interacting with are, are smart, strategic, oftentimes brilliant individuals, but it's a failure of intuition. Um, they don't actually see the ramifications of their action. Um, if you think of like massive organizations, the harm associated with many of these behaviors are these diffuse investors that are, you know, halfway around the world or employees they're not interacting with. Uh, what goes on the boardroom is very far away from the people who are ultimately impacted. Um, and so since you don't feel and see that, it makes it very easy to go ahead and engage in behaviors and even rationalize why it's not that bad because you don't actually see the consequences. Uh, well, that's, different than that's street my crime. question is like, do they actually think like, well, the law small, like it's not that bad. Like, is, is that what they tell them? Like, how are people lying to themselves to do what they do? Uh, I mean, let's take something like bribery. I mean, something that, you know, they're just trying to get business done and that's why they're, they're trying to make the firm succeed. So they're trying to break into some market somewhere around the world. And so they give a payment or, or, or something to, to a government official to break into that market to get the license. Um, I mean, what's fascinating to think about is, you know, prior to the 1970s, we didn't have a law in the United States that made that made bribery illicit. Um, up until the late 90s, actually, most of Europe, bribery was not illicit. Um, and so it's not like we have this, like, hard-rooted uh, human intuition against bribery being bad. It's something we've decided as a society over the last, you know, several decades is something that's not only bad, but something we will actually throw you in prison for. Um, and so we have all these artificially construed notions of what's good and bad. And I'll say where attorneys and advisors often come in, people are highly rewarded for finding clever ways that sometimes circumvent that. Um, so finding clever ways that you effectively are playing a bribe, but it's not going to violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Um, and I think that's one of the really kind of perverse incentives that we actually have in our society. Uh, people want to do things that are, well, I'll say, against the law but doing it in clever ways that don't actually violate that law. And we reward people very heavily for that, for that uh, behavior. Okay, so Eugene, not to put you on the spot and you can think about this, but like, I really would love some, I'm dying for some examples of like colorful characters and like the <laughs> shit that they'll told themselves to get away with what they did, anything. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there, there are uh, all, all kinds of, all, all kinds of, uh, well, do you want, I'll say, I'll pick something. Do you want something actually illicit or something that sits on the borderline that people sit there and say, this is really clever. And, and I, uh, and actually, you know, I almost want a pat on the back because I figured out a way to, to do it. I'll let you well, pick the category. Fr frankly, I would like one of each. It's like <laughs> one, I want vanilla and chocolate. Uh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll, let me start with the one that people are, are, I think they're really clever. And then maybe later I'll return to the, the, the criminal criminal one. Um, but I'll just say, I'll stick with the bribery. Um, people that want to pay bribes, um, but they also don't want to go to prison. Uh, so what do you do? So one of the, you know, the pre-COVID world, I, I spent a lot of time traveling in part because if you stay up late, go to long dinners with people and have a lot of drinks, you, you learn a lot of very interesting things around the world. Um, so one of the strategies that people have been um, in some parts of Southeast Asia employing to 
effectively bribe is that uh, they'll give a minister a $250 work of art, um, which is something you show on your company books. And, and then they know at the end of the meeting that if that minister uh, puts it up for auction at the end of the year, it just might be purchased for $50,000. Um, the company then goes back and purchases an arm's length transaction for $50,000. Um, what have you effectively done? You've transferred you know, $49,000 to that minister um, in a way that uh, doesn't because separate transactions on the company books wouldn't violate the law, and I'll say, unless they write some absurd email. Um, and so people think that's really clever. Uh, that's bribery. It reminds me of a certain someone in public <laughs> office one day. I mean, yeah, I hear you. Uh, I'll say it's that kind of, uh, and I'll say people are searching for that. There's like a whole industry around trying to find things like I've just described. Um, and so the person that's sitting there in in prison uh, for, for a bribe, which is something we in the United States prosecute people very aggressively for, is sitting there and saying, you know, I'm in prison facing like a six-year prison sentence. And like this other guy, like just found a, a more circuitous and colorful way of achieving that transaction. Um, and, you know, they're celebrating that. And, and I think that's what I find very, I'll say humbling when, when I think a lot of, about this conduct. That is fascinating. Um, okay, guys, do we want to open it up to questions? Yeah, um, why don't we have Heidi go up next? Heidi? Yes, hi, this is Hedy. Um, first of all, thank you so much. This is such an incredible room. I'm just checking you all at the same time on LinkedIn and reading about you guys. This is incredible. Like just bringing like-minded people together. The whole app is just incredible. So I'm really grateful. Um, the question I have is, the topic is very interesting. Um, a lot of people in our society, we're not comfortable around failure. It's not something that we want to talk about it. We, want to, we don't want to expose it. Or we also carry it as a shame, like within ourselves, inside. Um, one of the things I realized, as a matter of fact, one of my greatest creation happened back in 2018 at the backdrop of my biggest failure that it couldn't get any worse than that. So the question I have for you, uh, all of you, and maybe also even you, Eugene, um, based on what you said you're doing, I realize society reward, unfortunately, people that either they have a narcissistic behavior, they don't mind crushing people to get ahead in life. And unfortunately, that's a common theme I'm observing for over a decade now. And all of us as a society, what can we do? If we're not on the side of the law, we're not in a legal system, we're not on the, on the political system, we're different individuals. I'm coming, I'm an engineer turned a storyteller. I work with both Hollywood and Silicon Valley. So each of us has our own strength. And what I see and hearing right now in this room, the common ground between all of us, that's why we are here, is keeping our integrity. Every time we had to choose between integrity and you know, playing in a different game to get ahead. I think majority of us, we took, we picked integrity. What can we do as individual or as a group if you're observing this type of behavior within people or within organization that this is how they um, operate? What can we do about it so that it don't go that far like, like Elizabeth Holmes or you mentioned a uh, um, Bernie Madoff case? So that it doesn't go that far that some of the biggest and most brilliant people in the world, you know, get caught into it when the own, like one of the guy, his own grandson, when said, Grandpa, this is not a good 
organization hey, hey, back hey. out. let's yeah. make it Sorry. a question so that we can get more people in thank you so much sure. i appreciate it thank you so much i appreciate it eugene so do you want to take this one yeah. i think it was for you it, it, yes, speaking please. up is hard yeah uh, so i think you you know raise a great point so i think there's two things first I love your idea that people put integrity first. Um, I'll be honest. I, I think what that even means to different people uh, is very murky. Is that putting investors? Is that putting employees? Who is that actually putting first? Um, and then speaking up, uh, I'll say a study that we did uh, is that if you uh, most companies have people sign like their code of conduct and they have to agree that they're going to follow the rules. And if they see any misconduct, they'll report it. If you literally ask employees the following week, um, did you see any uh, misconduct of XYZ? You know, we'll talk fraud, bribery, harassment, discrimination in the last quarter. If so, did you report it? The numbers are always between 30 and 45%. So although we all sign a, a thing that says we will speak up if we see something wrong, actually the data is, and it's like a legal contract you've signed with your firm. In practice, the vast majority of people that actually see things don't speak up. And obviously retaliation is always on people's mind, but Beyond that, it's always, uh, I don't want to see a coworker. The person I go to barbecues on the weekend, I don't want to get them fired. Um, and so it's hard. How do we cultivate that environment? Uh, that's that's hard. I think that I, I agree with you, Eugene, but I think that's a leadership failure. Like if, if, you, if you have values or a code of conduct and you see people violating it as, let's just not say make the, the intern's job, but as a leadership group, there have to be some consequences. Otherwise, your culture goes completely and utterly sideways, is what I would say to that. I think Heidi asked a question too about like, what can we do? And she mentioned that she's an engineer turned storyteller. I love that. And you know, I think, I think we need more high integrity people who know how to tell a really good story. We need more high integrity people who know how to sell their own ideas. And one of the one of the I think sort of um, sort of the flip side to, to some of the stories we're sharing right now is a guy named Bob Ebeling. And if that name doesn't sound familiar to you, he was an engineer on the Space Shuttle Challenger. And he was he was a whistleblower because a, a, a couple of days before the Challenger went up, he ran the data. He ran the analysis and realized that like something was going to something wrong was going to happen. What he basically found was that the rubber uh, seals were going to freeze overnight and the temperatures were going to become unstable and uh, and it wasn't going to be safe. And so he did what I think, you know, most people would would do. He, he called a meeting. He got everybody in a room. He he walked everybody through his analysis and, and he was dismissed. And Challenger goes up. It disintegrates within 90 seconds, killing everyone on board. And Bob Ebeling blamed himself for the rest of his life. NPR interviewed him um, shortly before he died. And he said his, his literal word, his literal words were, God shouldn't have chosen me for that job because I had all the data and I, and I didn't know how to persuade. I didn't know how to tell the story around it. That's such a good point, Sunil. And if, if you hadn't decided that you should, uh, <laughs> read Sunil's book, uh, now's your chance because that story is in the book. All right, David, you're up. Hi, Morgan. Um, on average, what is more difficult to manage the client or public perception in crisis comms? I have a lot of thoughts, but I'll let Ash go take this one first. <laughs> yeah, I, look, I think, I think, you know, trying to control the public's impossible. <laughs> I think what's most important is, um, is managing the message. And, and like, I keep coming back to this point, but really understanding what the issues are. And I think if you can help the client get there and understand it, 
um, you will get to the optimal outcome. I mean, there are some circumstances which are just really difficult and really bad, but they will pass over and, and you just have to do the right thing. Um, so I, don't, I think it's, it's easier probably to manage the client because you can bring them on the process with you. Um, Margaret, what do yeah. you think? No, I agree with you, Ash. I think the problem with this, uh, David, is that the the if the client is like, "Hey, these stories are wrong," that's you're not in the right conversation because stories will never be fully accurate. Blah 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 blah. You have to figure out like, what is the business? What did the business do that is deemed a quote unquote failure? Like. Did we screw up? What do we do? And how do we make it right? And then you explain yourself and the public will come around. But the noise in between is just that. It's the noise in between. And we live in an era of social media where, unfortunately, there is more noise than we are able to handle emotionally or whatnot. So what you really need to figure out and help your client do is like, okay, like filter that out and let's focus on like what the business needs to do. And then the public will come around. Um, and I know that, and that sounds sort of like, oh, yeah, the public will come around. But I think eventually they, they will come around if you do the right thing. What happens when they're in conflict, the public and uh, the client? That's a very good question. And I think that, may, that means, um, say, I, I talked about this last week. It's like, say you're, you're looking at this and like, but I want to be popular, right? And the public doesn't like what I'm doing, but I think it's the right thing to do. That's the wrong conversation. If you're if you're in conflict with the public, but you think you're doing the right thing, you might just take the heat and think of the rhino and grow that skin. It's just I I don't have an easier answer for that. If you if you want to, you know, if if you want to be the most popular, then you'll be at the whim of the public, and you cannot run a business successfully that way. I also don't think you can be a parent successfully that way. And many, many, many other things, the manager, this and that and the other. But for sure, you cannot run a business that way. Thank you. I mean, Eugene, sure. it, might be worth, it might be worth explaining. Like, I mean, companies take risks the whole time about what's the litigation risk that you might have. They, they, you know, they weigh it up as to what the reputational risk is. And you've, you've seen that in some of your research, right, Eugene? Yeah, if you take a legalistic approach to it, I mean, it leads to... Uh, I mean, putting a lot of things under the carpet uh, until it's uh, it, it's not contained, and that's when they're you know coming to you, Ash. <laughs> um, and this is where I always want to partner with the lawyers. Um, one, I like lawyers a lot because they're smart people and they're they're sort of they th think through logic trees just like the comms people do. But I think what happens, and this is what I the conversation I have with CEOs all the time. I mean, with CEOs who find themselves in a pickle, is like okay. Here's the situation. The lawyers are going to tell you no because they're worried about the court case, right? And their and their day in court. And the PR people are going to go like, well, there's a court of public opinion and it's happening right now. And unfortunately, it's going to be up to the CEO to go like, how do I weigh these things? Because, and depending on, and it's highly dependent. It's so, so situationally dependent as to which way you go. And they don't always are at odds, but oftentimes they are. So yeah. speaking of lawyers, we actually had Jennifer uh, come up. She's a lawyer. I'd love to get her point of view, actually, on what we just talked about. Hi, thanks so much for bringing me up. Super happy to hear that somebody actually likes lawyers. I feel loved. Um, <laughs> my... <laughs> <Twitter>. <laughs> 
My question on this one would be also um, just on the broader issue is is looking at the different competing interests because it's not always one person or one type of person that's that's looking at how to get around rules or how to bribe or something. Um, and two examples that came to mind were, um, I think when I was dealing with software in the early 2000s, our Asian market guys said, look, if we don't bribe people, we can't compete over here. It's the norm. It's the cultural norm. It's just how business is done. And so there's sort of a competing cultural interest there when you're doing business in different groups. And the second would be to um, equate this kind of to the uh, pro cycling with the drugs, because most of those pro athletes actually didn't want to be on drugs, but they couldn't go off the um, hormones without, they, they lose their competitive edge. So unless 100% of people clean it up, you can't be the one or the 90 that that do clean it up. And so when you've got these people that want to win, you've still got, you know, what's the what's the broader interest, what are the competing interests, et cetera, going on? So just to bring that up. And also as, as an attorney, yeah, we do weigh, um, we do weigh risks of being caught in litigation in a lot of instances, which is too bad. I, I mean, I'm so glad you brought up all of these issues. I think that that may have been the case at Uber, where it's sort of like, when is the culture? And then that includes, you know, certain situations in Asia. And maybe I'm wrong about Uber, but like that is certainly a thing. I think at the at the heart of that, it's a cultural question. It's a leadership question. Like, what are we willing to do? And what are we willing to give up to do it? And so... You know, you have to really get your values straight and go like, okay, then maybe we won't do this. And we have, we will, we will help people figure out ways to win around this situation. But like that, those are, those are important, like ethical and cultural questions. They're not fundamentally legal and comms questions, which is why I think, you know, next time we do this thing, we should have a CEO on there because it really, literally all runs through her or him, and that's where it needs to get resolved. They're like, okay, what do, what do I stand for? And, you know, assuming <laughs> no one is willing to go to jail for anything, but like, what do I stand for and what am I willing to do? And how does that affect the, affect the culture of the company? Others, please. No, I 100% agree with you. I think it's completely cultural, but uh, in a lot of instances, is it, it, it can be such a big issue that it's risking the business. Like it, what? So it would be really interesting to hear different you know, CEOs speak about that and how they, what they've seen and how they've faced it. That sounds like another round we need to organize with CEOs and figure out what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do. That's a great idea. I was just going to add one thing on culture. So, so you know, we're talking a lot about the kind of heat of the moment and you know, big sort of reputational type issues. Crime is obviously a whole other level, but. I think there's a great Ben Horowitz quote, which I always, I'm going to paraphrase a bit here, which is, you know, good, good cultures are where bad news travels fast and good news travels slow. And I think it's, it's so important that organizations really understand the importance of this notion of what is a good and bad culture or, or what is the right culture for them. But at the same time, making sure that bad behaviors are not acceptable and they're stamped out. And that's just not from a financial crime standpoint or any kind of crime standpoint, but also just behaviors. You know, this idea that you, you treat people with respect, you treat people with with integrity, and that's such an important part of it. So I think it, it all starts from there before you even get into any kind of crisis moment. And I think getting that culture piece right is, is critical. And it will help you respond better in a moment of crisis as well, because you'll just end up doing the right thing. 
Actually, I mean, I think that's such an important point. You know, Margaret, I like how you brought this to, to thinking about culture, because I'll say I think a lot of organizations don't have that fully figured out. I'll, I'll give one example. Like, you know, early in the spring, one of the, the firms that we've we've done some uh, data analytics work for, someone called their, their helpline. Uh, it was a manufacturing firm. A working mom came in 30 minutes late to work and because you know, couldn't find childcare, uh, as we all were struggling with, you know, early on um, at, with COVID. And uh, her manager berated her, you know, if you show up 30 minutes late again, don't bother showing up at all. And, you know, the the employee called the, uh, the hotline, said her, uh, the manager was harassing her. Um, firm looks into this. Firm does not substantiate it because I would call this manager as an equal opportunity jerk, treats everyone, I would say, kind of disrespectfully. Um, but it, this wasn't legal harassment. And so the firm doesn't take any action. And I say this is the kind of area where firms myopically look at when an employee raises a concern. They're thinking through this narrow legalistic lens of like, are we on the hook for like some kind of violation? Rather than saying someone actually is making a great point here and doesn't feel respected this organization and the manager's not handling this appropriately. Um, yeah. And thinking about that's the problem that they need to handle, not should, is this a harassment violation? And so they missed an opportunity there, uh, which I'll say the firm is really struggling with because they they're looking through everything so myopically through this legal lens that they are concerned about actually talking to that manager and uh, offending him because you know he's such a high performing manager. <laughs> so and, and I that's find that just so, so insane. This is the thing where like if you don't have a culture, the law won't save you and PR won't save you. Anyhow. Uh, let's get to well, one. Can I, can I just throw in that that's another good example of where lawyers look bad because that's, as you said, that's an HR or a cultural issue. And people point to the law a lot to um, either cover themselves or, you know, give themselves an out or a way to do something. Um, you know, I ran HR or they reported to me that would not have come to me as a legal issue. That would be, hey, we need to, this is a cultural issue. But Eugene, what, I think you've given that example to me before. Wasn't there an actual issue at the company as well? But just following on on that story, so that was a that was the incident. But then, wasn't there a problem later on? Uh, and so this is where we've seen in the past when firms consistently have these unsubstantiated, uh, I'll say, HR issues, discrimination, harassment, and they don't take action. What do we see in the data nine months later, a year later? We actually see an increase of legal violations. We see embezzlement going up. We see people now showing up late for their job. Um, we see fraud popping up. And, and I think this is you know, the point of, if the company doesn't respect their employees, the employees won't respect the company back. Um, this is culture. Um, but uh, you can see it in the data, but firms are sometimes scared, uh, scared of that. And so they, they just fall back on, I think the law seems like an easy, quote, black and white area that they can rely on, but it, it, that's not how you form culture. Jude's been waiting patiently. Jude, do you have a question for us? Yes, I do. And it, it goes back to the beginning of, of something I heard from when Sunil was talking. Uh, that's when I raised my hand. But because I come out of media and coached a lot of crisis uh, people to talk on television, spokespersons, CEOs, my question, Sunil, and actually everyone, uh, why is it that companies spend so little comparatively investing on how to create a culture where it's safe to communicate and spend more time in, in covering those kinds of issues because it, it permeates everything the, from the brand to the bottom line. And yet so few companies, even if they don't want to, even if they're doing the right thing, they don't know how to communicate it and they mess up. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, a, it's an excellent question. Um, you know, I, I think, I think that we all know that creativity and, and persuasion are, are two different things. 
Uh, and, you know, but oftentimes we sort of, we, we almost kind of, I think in cultures, we can kind of, uh, um, we, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't make sure that people who have great ideas know how to communicate them well. Um, and people who want to do the right thing um, and, you know, make sure that, that uh, we stay within sort of moral boundaries are able to communicate what's inside of them as well. Um, and I think that's 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 a shortcoming. It's a shortcoming of a lot of cultures. I mean, a lot of what I what I what I spend time doing now is is I, I tend not to to spend as much time with with sales teams um, because those folks tend to know how to communicate ideas. But I spend a lot of time with creative teams and design teams and engineering teams um, because oftentimes, again, you have people who are you know very close to the product, very close to the customer, getting all sorts of great insights. Um, coming up with creative, brilliant ideas, uh, but getting dismissed all the time. Yeah, and I, and I'm with you. And just to add this, and I'll say thank you. Uh, I wish we saw more good news. And I went to a general manager of one of the TV stations one day and said, "Why can't we do more good news?" And they said, "Because it doesn't bring ratings." So, unfortunate. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jude. Who's next, Tina? Uh, let's have Ian. He's been uh, on. Ian, do you want to introduce yourself and ask your question? Hi, everyone. Um, so I've been in marketing, communications, strategy areas, and I was most intrigued by the whistleblower thing with NASA, especially as a kid who watched that sitting in school um, back then. So if you think about probably the most famous whistleblower, it's Edward Snowden. So I'm curious what everyone thinks on two things. One, do you think he was more right or wrong? And two, what could leaders today learn from that whole experience, whether it's political, business, or beyond, to actually do things in a better way? Hot one. Who, are, who's, who wants to take it? I nominate Ash. I think Ash should go first. Sorry to put you on the spot. There you go. Um, Look, I, th I think it's really important that um, companies foster a, a transparent way of doing things and thinking. And I think, you know, it, it all ties back to this culture question. And I think it's so important that you can have a culture within an organization where people feel like they really can speak up. And I think corporates in America have such a big role to play on it. Um, and they obviously employ a huge amount of people. So I think if we can create an ecosystem within the company where people really feel like they can they can talk and speak up that should hopefully permeate through in different ways so you know i keep coming back to culture but for me that's a, that's a huge part of it all okay i'm gonna try to just for the to provoke the discussion take the other side of that he worked for the government i think a secret agency he did sign a code of conduct and then he really, 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 really shared secrets. So this is a cultural violation. I think legal violation. However, I would just point that out. And Eugene, I think, wanted to weigh in. Uh, I, I think, uh, I, I, Margaret, I think I'm, going, I'm, I'm leaning toward your side that I mean, you can do the, the right thing and sometimes the wrong way. Um, I, I, I say there's clearly some areas he pointed out that I think we've all become very sensitive to that I think spurred the right discussion. At the same time, I'll say I think like many, uh, also a little bit worried when you dump, you know, 
terabytes of information unredacted online um, that's maybe more than, let's say, need to be placed out into the public. Um, you know, the NSA's tools and hacking tools and where those will now go. And so I think uh, you can be both right and wrong sometimes, probably on whistleblowing. Um, and, that, and that's why I think we're all have this rightful skepticism and concern sometimes with whistleblowers, because it's, it's not a clean process. Yeah, exactly. So one final thing before um, I stop. Do you think there's a chance he's ever beyond this? Or is this the rest of his life? I mean, I think he's probably very popular with the woke crowd. So this may be his moment. Um, and I have, personally have a lot of sympathy for, I think, a young man being very idealistic. But, like, he really broke all the covenants. Like, the he signed up for a thing. He signed a contract. And he broke the law, I think. So that's a rough one um, for me. And I don't know. I, I'm probably going to get canceled by half the crowd here. But. <laughs> I agree with you, though. So it's, it's a tough one. But I figured this is the best place to throw out a tough question. Yeah, no, thank you for doing it. This is, this is where we, our metal gets tested. And, uh, and it's, I am very much in favor of us disagreeing and then still having lunch together, which we can't do now, but we'll get vaccines, so we can do it. I'm just going to say one thing. I think it is super important, though, that companies have hotlines, and if they don't have hotlines, um, which is basically designed so people can come forward, like that is a huge problem. Um, and Eugene has done a lot of research into these as well. Um, so I think that's that's an important point to make. Every company should have have a hotline where people can go to. It's absolutely critical. Okay, we're basically at time, but I have one final question for the crew. Uh, this question came in from Twitter. If you could create a crisis kit and store it in your backpack, what would be in it and how many kits would you pack? And where would you store them? <laughs> Margaret, <laughs> you, why don't you take this one? Why don't you start with this one? Well, so the thing would be, this is so pedestrian, my phone with chargers and backup batteries and more backup batteries and whatnot, and then people, like a lawyer, an HR person, a comms person, and the CEO. I don't know that they fit all in the backpack, but like that's really what you need. Period. I'll let other people wait. That's a big backpack. Ash, do you want to go next? Yeah, you, you got to have some snacks as well, Margaret. You got to have some food. Be oh, crap. Who needs to eat? Yes, good point. <laughs> but, like, uh, I, I, I mean, I wasn't planning on going to the desert where there's no food, but okay, got it. No, I think that's a, that's a very good backpack. I, yeah, lot, lots of battery power. So I'll, I'll chime in. Um, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I, I took a trip to Bhutan, Kingdom of Bhutan, which measures progress based on what they call gross national happiness. So GDP, economic growth is a factor, but it all rolls up into the happiness of their people. And while I was there, I got a chance to spend time with the research team, the team that goes out town to town and, and does all the collection of the data. And I asked him, I said, is there, is there one question, just one, that you could ask? that could give you a pretty good sense of how happy somebody is just based on all the data you've collected over the, over the past decades. And they said, yeah, as a matter of fact, there is. And, and the question is, 
if you were in real trouble today, who could you call and know with 100% certainty they would be there for you? And they believe people who can answer that question pretty easily tend to be happier. But there's a twist. And the twist is, whose list are you on? So who can call you and know with 100% certainty you'll be there for them? Um, so it's not a line, it's, it's a circle. And you know, I, I think I'd, I'd very much echo Margaret's point, which is I, I would have a lawyer and I have, I'd have you know, conciliary, but I'd also have just good like, friends, like good people. Who I'm, who I'm, who I'm able to get on speed dial and talk to, and have them be for, be there for me, and and have them know that I'm I'm there for them. Well, so so Neil, you made you moved it from a crisis to a life thing, but I I I but I, I think totally... it, but I think they're but I think they're related, and and the reason no, the reason they're... for that. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, I think I think that, um, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier too. You know, there's there's the there's the strategic moves that are being made. Um, but there's also sort of like if you don't have enough gas in the tank while all this is happening as a leader, um, you're not going to be able to lead the right way. And so I think that that there's two sides to it. It's the it's the strategic team, and then I think it's the emotional team. Well, and the way I think about it, like you and I are like at the opposite end of the spectrum. I think coming out at the same thing, which is amazing. The, the way I think about it is like, okay, so I got to be on this planet. And how, what am I going to do to leave this planet ever so slightly better than I found it? And like, and that gets to like, whose list are you on, right, Sunil? Which is, I think, a great way to think about life goals. It's like, okay, so whose list are you on? And I've just gone personal thing yeah. through the high school process with my kid. I live in San Francisco and she wants to do a boarding school. That's a whole nother topic. But like both are Hunger Games without whatever. And like, it's been an amazing, amazing experience for like who actually is on your list when you go through a thing like that. And yeah. if you want a personal experience from what Sunil has gone through, Sunil, I don't want to embarrass you, but your wife, Lena, who is like amazing, wrote un an unbelievable essay about like moving to Detroit and like staying in Detroit, even though that was your dream. You guys should all um, read this because that is like, okay, so who's on my list? And certainly Lena is on your list and you're on her list. So do you want to tell people where to read that and what that's all about? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think Lena might be here somewhere. She is. Uh, well, where is you she? Know, Let's find her. Tina, can is... you find her? Uh, oh yeah. Let me bring her up. <laughs> I love that essay. I mean, I was so thrilled. Hi, to that. hi. <laughs> hey, I know it's just going to be called out, but yeah. Hi, well, um, I'm being called out. You're being complimented. <laughs> Hello. Hi, thank you, Margaret. I really appreciate you calling um, attention to something that was a, a, a really meaningful piece. Probably one of the most meaningful pieces of writing that I've um, that I've ever had in in my in my career. Um, is it helpful for me to just describe really quickly? Yeah, so I don't really know, by the way, we're this about is the to end. close the room. So, Lena, this would be the best and honorable way to close the room. Tell people like that story and okay. how you thought about it, because I okay. think that's a great way to be on someone's list, which is what Sunil said. <laughs> so, um, my uh, my story is that um, you know I had just had my second child. We were in San Francisco. Sunil's my husband. We were um, uh, 
sort of leading this great life in San Francisco. And Margaret, I totally understand and empathize with the whole school thing. We had just gotten our daughter into a great kindergarten program in San Francisco, which is like, I felt like also like Hunger Games, though I can imagine it gets worse as kids get older. And, uh, and Snow came to me and said, I want to, I have this dream. I want to move back to Michigan and I want to run for office. And I, you know, I want to move our our two little girls back there. And I said, like, oh, my gosh, like, absolutely not. Like, how, it just seems like an insane sort of move. We have a great life here. Um, but he persisted. And I knew that I had to support him. And, and, and we did. And we moved back. And we moved to a place that was very foreign to me. But um, I, in that process, I, I think I was very sort of anti this idea of moving to Michigan. But once I moved here and I realized just such an amazing, what an amazing community we have here and that life isn't necessarily about um, your location, but it's how you look at it and what love and the love and the lens and through which you look at your community. I think that that really, um, that really made what, that really made our happiness here. So is that, is that helpful? Lena and I had a deal. I just want to say this real quick, Margaret. Lena and I had a deal. Eventually, the way that, that the way that we decided to move to Michigan is I said, um, you know, if I win my election, then obviously we stay in Michigan. If I lose, then you get the call on where we move next. Like no questions asked. It's your call wherever you want to go. And that was the deal that we made. And so I lose my election and we let enough time pass. And, and then we have the conversation. And I'm like, where is it going to be? And she says, here, I like it here. Listen, guys, I mean, you're on each other's list, which is really the most important thing in life. And that is not a failure. That is a huge success. So with that, I thank all of you. And Lena, thanks for coming up without like knowing to. Um, Ash, Eugene, Carly, Sunil, Lena, Tina, you guys are amazing. And I thank you for coming on. So and I'm sure we'll reconvene at some point when whatever drives us. So, but thank you. And with that, we'll close. Have a good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.